So Revelation 18, starting in verse 9, I will read through verse 20. And we read here, The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble, and cinnamon, and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and bodies and souls of men. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, who travel, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. A lot of weeping, wailing, and mourning going on in this passage here as we see uh, three groups of people wailing and weeping and mourning the destruction and the fall of Babylon the Great. And that's what we looked at last time in uh, verses 1 through 8, which when we met, I guess it would have been, did we have a fifth? It was three weeks ago, right? We had a fifth week, so we met three weeks ago. Uh, and we see in chapter 18, right, it begins with an angel, one of the angels who poured out the bowls of God's judgment we saw earlier, coming down from heaven, having great authority, and this angel uh, announces the fall of Babylon the Great. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, and the fact that it is repeated is meant to highlight and underscore the finality and the certainty of Babylon's destruction. Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. As we see in other judgment motifs in the Old Testament, Babylon has become a desolation. What was once a great and <clears throat> luxurious city has, be, has been laid waste, has been left open to the jackals and left open to the wild creatures to inhabit and to overrun, and, and, and it's become a wasteland. 
The image of Sodom and Gomorrah should come to mind as when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, he rained fire down upon those two cities, and they were laid to waste. They were turned into dust. And the reason, of course, for the judgment here is the debauchery and fornication. Right? Verse 3, For all the nations have drunk the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. And here again you see the kings and merchants, which we just saw in the passage. We read uh, the next passage here. These are the, the very same people who were uh, living high on the land, right? who were living high on the hog here in Babylon, are now seen weeping and mourning because Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. But they have committed fornication with her, and they have become rich through her. And of course, before judgment falls, we see God calling his people out of Babylon. Verses 4 and 5, I heard another voice, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. Again, that reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah, when the angels come and they drag Lot and his family kicking and screaming from Sodom because they didn't really want to leave, or at least Lot's wife didn't really want to leave. Lot was kind of indifferent, um, but... You know, they they left the city, and then that, you know, so God's people were being drawn out of the wicked city before destruction comes. So, again, just like Lot and his family fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah, just like the people of Israel being brought out of Egypt as judgment comes, here we see God's people are being preserved, right? Because we are in the world, but not of the world. We looked at that motif a little bit last time, too the fact that the church, the people of God, in the age that we're looking at, the church age, this age that we're in between the coming of Christ and then his return at the end of the age, uh, we're in a sense kind of like in exile. We are kind of like Israel in Babylon. We're kind of like uh, Israel in Egypt. We are in exile. We are sojourners. We are, we are not uh, citizens of this world. Paul makes that quite clear in Philippians 3. We are not citizens of this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. Right where God is. Uh, we are just part of this world. We are sojourners. We are exiles. We are pilgrims. So we are in, but not of the world. So God calls his people out. And then just to close off the passage from last time, we see in the verses 6 or 8 the, the judgment that is uh, meted out against uh, Babylon here. So as God's people come out of her, uh, she is then judged and it's measured out, double, according to all her works. So everything that she did, double is repaid to her. Whatever she did to the saints, double is repaid to her. Her plagues will come in one day. In other words, very quickly. Um, you know, the, the, the time markers in Revelation are always interesting because they're all symbolic, and they all either portray a long period of time, a medium period of time, or in this case, one day, a very, very, very short period of time. Now what we see here. In the passage before us tonight, we see judgment coming upon her in one hour. That's almost instantaneous from, from God's perspective. So judgment is coming on her, mixed double for her, uh, in the measure that she glorify herself and live luxury, in the same measure give her torment. So God's judgment is always perfect. It's always planned out. It is always according to the works. Right? Whatever the, the wicked in Babylon did, God repays them back exactly what they are deserving. So that's just a recap of last time. Now, just to 
kind of <clears throat> get ourselves situated in the book of Revelation, kind of where we're at as we're approaching the end here. If you remember, you know, you've, the, the way Revelation is set up, it's set up as a, you've got an introduction in chapter 1. You've got then John is told to write letters to seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, so we saw those. So the way the book is kind of broken up is things that have happened, things that are, and things that will take place after this. So when you get to chapter 4, you start the passage of the section of the book that is things that shall take place after this. And from chapter 4 through chapter 20, that entire section is all sort of apocalyptic, it's all visionary, and it's, it's broken down into seven cycles. Seven cycles. So you had the cycle of the seals, you had the cycle of the trumpets, you had the cycle of the woman, the beast, and the child, the dragon, the woman, and the child. You had the cycle of the bulls, and now we're in the fifth one here, the fifth of seven cycles, as we look at, in a sense, the fall of Babylon, or these two women. The one woman is Babylon, and in its, most of that section is, deals with her. And then you have uh, the church, the, the bride, who is uh, adorned as a, as a bride coming to her wedding, and you have the wedding feast of the Lamb. So we're in that fifth cycle of seven. So we're almost at the end. And this cycle looks at the church age, again, that period between uh, the resurrection of Christ and his return at the end of the age. It looks at this period of time from the perspective of the fall of Babylon. Again, these cycles, they're, they're not meant to be understood as one happening right after the other, after the other, after the other. They're not meant to be taken sequentially. They're all... As I like to say, they're, they're perspectives on the same period of time from different angles. And the example I like to use, of course, is the, you know, the old football replay. You get the goal line you know, score, and you see the replay from the sideline. You see the replay from overhead. You see the replay from behind. You see the replay you know, right on the goal line there. And all of these perspectives, they show you different emphases but they're all looking at the same play. And the same thing here, the cycle is looking at the same play, but from the perspective now of the fall of Babylon. So the fall of Babylon here is being portrayed. And this is, again, something that will happen at the end of the age. Babylon is an ascendancy, in a sense, right now. And Babylon will be judged and will fall at the end of the age. Now, Babylon is not meant to be the city Babylon, it's, it's meant to be referenced to pretty much symbolic for anything that is against God. The evil world system that puts itself against God. Political, economic, social, all of which is opposed to God. Now, it's, it's, they use the term Babylon because Babylon was the first sort of evil empire, if you will, that, that God's people were met with when they... Uh, sinned and they were exiled. They were exiled to Babylon. It was, and then when Daniel gets all of these images in the, in the book of Daniel, the first big evil kingdom that comes up is the kingdom of Babylon. So Babylon, again, is symbolic for the evil world system which is opposed to God. And in this vision, starting in chapter 17, Babylon is pictured as a seductive harlot sitting atop a scarlet beast. So you've got the evil world system resting, if you will, on the powers of the satanic world kingdoms. The beast is representative of 
the kingdoms of the earth that are also against God. And here is Babylon resting on this scarlet beast. And again, it's, it's symbolic of the sort of symbiotic relationship, the, the relationship that exists between uh, power of evil world kingdoms, between government and culture and society, how they're kind of linked in what you see in the world here. So now our passage here looks at the destruction of Babylon from the perspective of three groups of people. It's going to look at the destruction of Babylon from the perspective of the kings of the earth, from the perspective of the merchants of the earth, and from the perspective of the captains, I I should have said captains of the sea, but I wanted to keep the of earth, of the earth, of the earth thing going, so the captains of the earth. And it closes with rejoicing in heaven that you see there in verse 20. Now this passage would, of course, have a special significance to John and the first century church in Rome. Again, John wrote late first century. That's what we believe. That's the majority report. When you look at the book of Revelation, there is a minority report that says that Revelation was written before the fall of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, but I hold to the later view around 90-95 A.D. And while this passage would have a special significance to John in the first century church in Rome, its significance transcends the first century, of course and plays out pretty much in any period of time that you can place the church in. Wherever the church is, she is going to be sort of, in a sense, surrounded by Babylon, and and it has to come out of Babylon before the judgment falls. The The vision here speaks of the realities that we see in the world today, and will continue until the time that Christ returns at the end of the age. So now this section here that we're looking at begins with the kings of the earth lamenting. The kings of the earth lamenting the fall of Babylon in verses 9 and 10. So after Babylon has fallen, after she has been judged, this symbol of all the world's wickedness, all the world's evil, we see those then who dwell upon the earth. That Now it's not used in this passage, but I'm using it because it refers to the wicked. Those who dwell on the earth. They mourn and they lament the fall of Babylon. Babylon is judged by God and the people of the earth are mourning her loss. They are mourning her loss. And the first group of mourners are the kings of the earth in verse 9. The kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning. Now again, what do we know about the kings of the earth? What do we know about this group of people? Well, as we see here, there are those who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with Babylon, with the harlot. Again, remember, you know, when you think of Babylon being pictured as a great harlot, and you see how she is described, right, in, verse, in chapter 17, uh, she is uh, arrayed in purple and scarlet. This is 17, verse 4 and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, and she has in her hand a golden cup full of abomination. So here she is, this seductive harlot, Babylon. And the kings of the earth are seen here as those who commit fornication with the harlot. You know, I mean, I don't know how else to put it. It's what the scriptures are telling us. It's very graphic. It's very graphic, and it's meant to show how the kings of the world are sort of using the world system to further their own power. 
They use the world system. They abuse the world system. The political leaders and kingdoms of the nations all throughout human history, uh, the emperors, pharaohs, kings, tyrants, prime ministers, presidents, whatever you want to call them, they have all sort of become engaged with this, this world system. They become part of it. Now these kings are also described as the kings of the earth in verse 3 that have committed fornication with her. These are the same kings we see in chapter 17, verse 12, who are the uh, horns of the beast, if you will, the ones who have no kingdom yet, but will have a kingdom later on. Leaders of the various manifestations of the beast throughout history. Again, the beast is the image of government. It is the image of world power that is against God. And as the beast rises up, and every manifestation of the beast has a head, if you will. That's why oftentimes you see the beast pictured with seven heads. So you think of all of these world empires that you see throughout the history, and you think, well, they're all separate. No, they're not all separate. <laughs> they're all part of the same beast. Just one, one head dies, another one pops up and takes over. It may be Babylon, it may be Greece, it may be Persia, it may be Rome, it may be some other empire. It doesn't matter. It's all part of one multi-headed beast. And the kings of the earth then are just those who rule over these manifestations of the beast throughout history. Now again here, we've mentioned this before in previous lessons, the fornication, the use of that word fornication here is figurative. It's not literal. And fornication or adultery oftentimes in the Bible is symbolic of idolatry. So when you see the prophets of Israel... Uh, rebuking Israel for their fornications. It's more often than not rebuking Israel for her spiritual adultery, for her idolatry by chasing after other gods. God refers to himself as the husband of Israel. And then Israel is often, when she's not behaving well, often pictured as a, an unfaithful wife. And God rebukes her. The, the book of Hosea is a perfect example of that in which God calls the prophet Hosea to sort of live a real-life parable of God's relationship with Israel. And he tells Hosea, go marry a prostitute. Well, I'm sure poor Hosea is probably thinking, okay, uh, can you run that by me again, God? It's like, go marry a prostitute. It's like, okay. And have children of whoredom. And he's like, all right, fine, whatever. And it's like, that's what it feels like when you, Israel, chase after other gods. And, and then Jose, you know, she gets sold into slavery, and then he has to tell her later on, go redeem her now. Hosea's like, okay, go redeem her. <laughs> and, and Hosea's life is then pictured as God with Israel. So adultery, fornication, is often just a way of saying you are being idolatrous. And that's what these world governments are. When they commit fornication with the beast, they are not honoring God. God established government for his purposes. And when they go against God's purposes, they are committing fornication. They are not uh, doing their God-assigned purposes to govern the world. And here it is, speaks of how political officials, public officials, government leaders benefit greatly from the world system. Have you ever seen a politician living poorly? <laughs> I mean, in America, where at least we have some semblance of, of checks and balances, 
They don't get to live too high off the hog, perhaps. Maybe some backbencher might be living within his means. But surely, I mean, it's like you look at our, even our politicians, almost all of them are millionaires, and they're not millionaires because of the public salary they're getting, right? And then, not, and then you look at countries other than America, and they're basically, you know, it's like we send them aid money, and basically it just goes into some dictator's bank account more often than not, and the people are still starving. So politicians benefit greatly from the world system. Consider pretty much any world government in his history. None of the leaders have lived in, in poverty. They've always lived in luxury compared to the rest of the people. Even the tin pot dictators and banana republics live in luxury compared to the rest of the people. So you've got these people who are, you know, maybe making three cents a day doing some kind of labor, making shoelaces for some gym shoe company. I'm not going to name names, Nike. Um, but... <laughs> some gym shoe company, and then the dictator there, you know, he's not going to be living like Vladimir Putin or any of these other guys, but he's going to be living a lot better than three cents a day, right? That's the point. They take advantage of the system. Leaders use and abuse the world order for their own advantage, and it's that, again, that symbiotic relationship that I mentioned earlier between the government and the culture and the society, the world system. But, this is a good but, but's my favorite word in the Bible, but God are my favorite two words in the Bible. When Babylon falls, the kings here are weeping and lamenting. So these are the same words that you see oftentimes in Scripture to express great grief, great sorrow. They're used of Peter when he wept bitterly after betraying Jesus. When he betrayed Jesus, the Gospels tell us that Peter went off and wept bitterly. But instead of weeping and lamenting their fornication with the harlot, the kings mourn when they see the smoke of her burning. In other words, our gravy train has been destroyed. We're no longer able now to take advantage of the system because the system has been destroyed. We are weeping and lamenting not because of our sin, but because we no longer are able to do what we want to do. They are mourning because they will no longer get to commit fornication or live in luxury. Look further in verse 10. So they are weeping for her when they see the smoke of her burning. Verse 10, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, alas, alas. Not the best translation. It should be woe, woe. Does ESV have woe, woe? What is it? Alas? Okay. The word is woe. <laughs> woe. Not like woe Nelly, but woe is in the curse. Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. So they're lamenting, the kings of the earth, they're lamenting the loss of Babylon, but notice how they're lamenting at a distance. <laughs> it's like, you know, you ever make that joke when someone says something sacrilegious and you want to move over a few seats because you don't want to be there when God strikes them with lightning? That's the same thing here, the kings of the earth. Okay, Babylon has been struck and the kings of the earth are kind of like, okay, we'll mourn, but we're going to mourn at a safe distance. We don't want to be too close lest we get caught up in, in, in the judgment here, right? You know, for fear of her torment, they stand at a distance. So here they are lamenting at a distance. They don't want to help her. 
And that's another thing, too. Notice how they don't even bother trying to help Babylon. They just, they're, they're perfectly okay standing at a distance watching her burn. And they don't want to get caught up in her destruction. And this is so like the world, right, <laughs> that you see out there, right? There's no true sorrow over sin or its devastating effects, only remorse over the loss of benefits, over the loss of your privileges, right? This is the lamenting of the self-interested. Because without Babylon, without this system in place, the kings of the earth will no longer get to enjoy her evil delicacies. They'll have to, you know, well, of course, they're going to be judged pretty shortly as well. But here they are lamenting. It's like the lamenting of what 2 Corinthians 7 says, right? True godly sorrow produces repentance, and ungodly sorrow just produces death. It's the lamenting of Esau, right? When Esau was uh, being tricked by, by Jacob, and then Jacob goes and he tricks his dad to get the blessing, and Esau comes in, and he's got the meal prepared, and Isaac says, I already gave away the blessing, sorry. And Esau starts weeping and lamenting and, and oh, woe is me. And, and, and Jacob's like, I'm sorry, I already gave the blessing. And it's like, don't you have one for me? He's like, no. He wasn't sorry because, I mean, think of what Esau did, right? He, he rejected his birthright. He traded away his privilege of being the firstborn when he sold it for stew. He treated his, his own heritage shamefully. Here he is weeping, not because he was sorry for his sin, but weeping the loss of his, of his uh, position, of his privilege. It's the same thing happening here. So it's not just the kings, of course, lamenting. Next we see in verses 11 through the first half of verse 17, the merchants of the earth will lament. Look at verse 11. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. So the merchants of the earth are also sad. This world system that we were able to take advantage of and make a lot of money in is gone. We are weeping because no one buys our stuff anymore. That's what they say. No one buys our merchandise. So the fall of Babylon evokes a similar reaction from the merchants as it did from the kings. And again, for similar reasons. Again, this is not the, repent, the, the lament of the repentant but the lament of the wicked, this time because of lost opportunity. It's kind of like that, you know, you see, sometimes you see a caricature of the greedy capitalist, right? It's usually some, you know, think of the Monopoly guy, right? That's the greedy capitalist, right? You know, some fat cat with a monocle and the top hat and, you know, make, with money kind of just like falling out of his pockets. He's so rich. Here's the greedy capitalist who only cares about the bottom line, and that's the image here that you see of these merchants lamenting the fall of Babylon. And the imagery of these laments, this one and the previous one to follow, these images are drawn out of what you see in the book of Ezekiel. So John borrows his imagery of this lamenting from the lamenting that you see when the city of Tyre is judged in the book of Ezekiel. You can turn there if you'd like. Ezekiel chapter 27. This is the judgment, God's judgment on Tyre, uh, the city that would be in uh, Lebanon, just north of Israel. It was a very wealthy seafaring city. They had great ships and a great navy, and they were able to 
to go and amass a huge fortune through mercantile exchange and everything. In 27, really, the whole chapter is a lament for Tyre as judgment comes upon her, but I'm not going to read the whole chapter. But I do want to start in verse 20. Well, let's just start in verse 25. Let's just start in 27. Let's start in 25 of Ezekiel 27. So we see here the ships of Tarshish, that was a city of Tyre, were carriers of your merchandise. You were filled and very glorious in the midst of the seas. Your oarsmen brought you into many waters, but the east wind broke you in the midst of the seas. Your riches, wares, and merchandise, your mariners and pilots, your caulkers and merchandisers, all your men of war who are in you, and the entire company which is in your midst will fall into the midst of the sea on the day of your ruin. The common land will shake at the sound of the cry of your pilots. All who handle the oar, the mariners, all the pilots of the sea will come down from their ships and stand on the shore. They will make their voice heard because of you. They will cry bitterly and cast dust on their heads. They will roll about in ashes. They will shave themselves completely bald because of you. Gird themselves with sackcloth and weep for you with bitterness of heart and bitter wailing. In their wailing for you, they will take up a lamentation and lament for you. What city is like Tyre? And it's this, I mean, the language is almost exactly right out of this in Revelation 18. Destroyed in the midst of the sea. When your wares went out by sea, you satisfied many people. You enriched the kings of the earth with your many luxury goods and your merchandise. But you are broken by the seas. In the depths of the waters, your merchandise and the entire company will fall in your midst. All the inhabitants of the isles will be astonished at you. Their kings will be greatly afraid and their countenance will be troubled. The merchants among the peoples will hiss at you. You will become a horror and be no more forever. So this language, this John is in a sense borrowing a lot of this language from Ezekiel, now describing, instead of Tyre, describing Babylon here, this, this wicked city, the same way that they mourned for Tyre, the kings and the merchants are mourning for Babylon. In a sense, Ezekiel 27 is a blueprint for Revelation 18. So after we see this verse here in which the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one's buying their stuff, in verses 12 and 13 we get a list of the stuff that no one is buying anymore. And it's a quite an extensive list here of things. Gold and silver, precious stones and pearls, Fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, every kind of citron wood. I don't even, does anybody know what citron wood is? I have no idea. I didn't bother like, looking it up. I just thought maybe someone who worked with wood might know. But citron wood, okay, going back to the verse. Every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron, and marble. And cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense, bless you. Wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots, and, and here, the, the last one here, and bodies and souls of men. So the merchants not only sold a whole bunch of stuff, precious stones, precious metals, fine linen, uh, expensive spices and, and perfumes and all kinds of things, but they also trafficked in human beings. They were slave traffickers there as well. And again, this list is quite detailed, all the things you see here. And, and again, if John writing, and if, if Rome in John's context 
would be the Babylon of his day, Rome was the center for all these things. Rome would have gathered all of these things from all over the world, dealing with precious metals, dealing with spices and all kinds of uh, fragrances and things that they got. They would have, all the wealth of the world would have come to Rome because Rome was the center of the empire in those days. But again, notice they traded in human bodies and souls. Of course, slavery, probably next to prostitution, is one of the oldest <laughs> trades in the world, right? I mean, ever since there's been a fall, there's been slavery and prostitution. And when a society engages in human trafficking, you know it has hit the bottom of the barrel, if you will. The merchants are trading in people. That is, you know, the, the, the lowest of the low. And again, this is a, a judgment as you, if you will, on crass consumerism and crass materialism. Solomon, King Solomon, when he, uh, in his older years, and he's writing the book of Ecclesiastes, and he's looking back on his life and showing and trying to, you know, to tell us how he searched for meaning in all of these pursuits. He pursued wisdom. He pursued sensual pleasure. He pursued uh, building projects and, and all these things. And in chapters 5 and 6, of Ecclesiastes, it talks about how uh, the vanity of the wealth and riches, and he, that was one of the things. Okay, so I went out and I tried to gather as much wealth and as much riches as I could. And he says he found that it too was vanity. It was empty. It was an empty pursuit. There was no meaning in all of these things that he sought for. Just as there's no meaning in life under the sun. Yeah. Okay, there you go. Now we know. Okay, so citron wood is, was used as a, it was a fragrant wood used in sacrifices. Thank you. And thank, I'm assuming, Google for that information. <laughs> okay. Let's see, where was I? Crass consumerism. Okay. <laughs> But Solomon talks about the, the, the vanity of accumulating wealth and riches. And it, it, it's a vain pursuit. I mean, every pursuit without God, that's why you know, Ecclesiastes talks about life under the sun. Life under the sun basically is life in this world. God, in a sense, is in heaven. We are under the sun. We are on earth. And life without God in this world is meaningless. You can pursue all these things, and you might make a good life for yourself, but then what Ecclesiastes says, okay, you build up all this wealth, guess what? You're going to leave it to a fool who's not going to know how you earned it, and he's not going to take care of it, and he's going to waste it. You get all this wisdom, and what do you do? Okay, nothing, right? You pursue sensual pleasures, and it doesn't uh, turn out to be lasting. Our Lord Jesus talks about the person who, having gained the world, loses his soul. Pursuing the riches of this world, the, you know, the merchants, that's all they did. They pursued the riches of this world. Yet if you pursue and gain the whole world but forfeit your soul, what do you have? You are just to be most pitied, right? And again, we see it all around us even today. People, you know, working for the almighty dollar, working for the buck, right? You know, the old song, working for the weekend, whatever you want to call it. You know, it's just this consumerism. You see it. You know, ad companies, all they do is try to sell you stuff you don't need, 
and, and try to make you spend money you don't have to buy stuff you don't need, right? That's all these companies do. They're trying to they sell you stuff because that's how the merchants make their money. People try to fill that God-shaped hole in their life with stuff. And you can't do it. You can't fill that hole with stuff. It sounds like you can fill a hole with stuff, but not the stuff of the world. As I said, we have an entire industry devoted to trying to make us buy things we don't need with money we don't have. And just as the kings loved the power and prestige that Babylon afforded them, the merchants want the wealth. And they both mourn the fall of Babylon. But also, just like the kings and the merchants, uh, just like the kings, the merchants mourn from a distance. Look at verse 14 and 15. Well, just 14 through the first half of 17 here. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you. So this is, uh, presumably, this is a voice of the angel who is pronouncing this woe. The fruit that your soul longed for, O merchants, has gone from you because Babylon has fallen. All the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will, again, stand at a distance for fear of her torment. So they're off in a distance, weeping and wailing and mourning the fall of Babylon and the the destruction of their uh, economic empire. And they too also say in verse 16, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet. Again, now, you know, these, these, that, that description there, verse 16, is exactly how the beast, or how the, I should say, how the harlot who sits on the beast is described in verse 4 of chapter 17. Arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Here you see in verse 16, that was clothed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. Then the first half of verse 17, for one hour such great riches come or came to nothing. So they mourn at a distance because of the fall of Babylon. The merchants are weeping and wailing, the same words from verse 11. But instead of weeping and wailing over their crass materialism, just like the kings did not weep over their fornication, they're not weeping over the fact that they've wasted their lives selling worthless materials, they're weeping at the fact that they can't make money anymore. That's what they're doing here. They're weeping because their trade is gone, because their consumers are gone. And they're sad, and they're weeping in this. Now, I'm going to take a moment here and just highlight some things uh, that you see in this passage, because John repeats things and every time you see repetition, that's something to kind of notice, right? So again, you notice how the kings of the earth mourn at a distance, the merchants mourn at a distance. You're going to see the, 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 the sailors and shipmasters, they, they mourn. You know, they stood at a distance and mourned as well. Um, they all say, alas, alas, that great city Babylon. The kings say that great city Babylon, that mighty city for in one hour your judgment has come. Notice the irony there, right? That's ironic. A great city, a mighty city, has fallen in one hour. <laughs> right? Think of the city Jericho with its great big walls. Right? And its walls, as the song, you know, the kitty song says, came a-tumbling down. Right? The walls of Jericho come a-tumbling down because God judged Jericho. Right? God judged Jericho. 
that great city. And they also notice the swiftness of the judgment in one hour. One hour, again, in a book loaded with apocalyptic time markers, one hour is brief. Their judgment happens almost instantaneously. Quicker than the walls of Jericho fell in that case. So this is repeated over and over again in this passage. This woe, this lament that they cry out from a distance. And they all mention how she has fallen in an hour. And that just speaks to the fact that at the end of the age, when God comes to judge, I mean, the world... What, is, what does Jesus say about the end in Matthew 24? He says, when, you know, when the Son of Man comes, the people of the earth are going to be sitting there. They're going to be partying up. They're going to be eating, drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And all of a sudden, boom, the Son of Man comes, and it's all gone. Just as in the days of Noah, right? People were going about their business. Noah says it's going to rain. The people of the earth are probably saying, what's rain, Noah? We've never seen rain before. So they're like, well, it's going to come. And then all of a sudden... It comes, and they're over there on the ark. Noah, let us in, let us in. It's like, sorry, the door is sealed. I didn't even seal it. It's off, and we're gone. Judgment comes swiftly. It comes when you least expect it. Jesus says, I will come as a thief in the night. I will come in an hour when you least expect it. And in that time, you're going to be living life as as you normally do, because you're going to be completely oblivious to the fact that Jesus is coming in a moment, in an hour. So now we look at the last group, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this last group because they essentially repeat themselves here, but these are the shipmasters, right? I said the captains, I couldn't, I should have just said (laughs) shipmasters, but then if I said shipmasters of the earth, that doesn't sound right because they should be on the sea, and I wanted to keep the thing with the earth going, so bear with me. The captains of the earth lament. So you see the shipmasters here, 17 Uh, Second half of 17, going into 18. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ships, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what is like this great city? We saw that lament in the lament of Tyre, right? What What great city is like the city of Tyre? Well, it's not much of a great city anymore because it's now sitting in a smoldering ash heap just like Babylon is here. But the shipmasters, those who operated in the, in the trade for the merchants, those, basically the shipmasters are those who ported all of the stuff that the merchants sold. So they would be the ones that would take this, the gold from one place and bring it to Babylon. They would be the ones that would take the, the fragrant citron wood and bring it to Babylon, the spices and all the fragrance. And they're off in a distance now mourning. And they cry out when they see Babylon in ruins because now their trade has ended. Those who made money on the ocean doing all of this work, are, are the, the trade on the sea is gone. Our livelihood is gone. They lament again, saying, what is like this great city? This is similar to what we see. This language is similar to what we see in Revelation 13, verse 4, when talking about the beast. And those who worship the beast say, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? You know, in other words, who can stand up to the beast? Well, God can stand up to the beast. <laughs> How about that? God can stand up to the beast. And here they mourn what is like this great city, Babylon. It's the language that was used typically for God. 
Moses in the great song of Moses in Exodus 15 after the children of Israel have been brought out of Egypt and they've crossed the Red Sea and then Pharaoh comes and God closes the Red Sea upon them and they drown. Then Moses raises a song of celebration and in that song he says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? That is the kind of language that is reserved for God and God alone. Not what is like this great city because God destroys the city. But God, there is no, no one like our God. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? No one. The depths of the lament for Babylon show how, again, symbiotically connected kings and merchants and the sailors or workers are with this great harlot, Babylon. And again, in verse 19, we see again this language of despair and repentance uh, being used in reference to Babylon's fall. Verse 19, they threw dust in their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, as we saw before, the third time now, alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth. See, there's, there's the shipmaster's lament. Uh, we're sad because we no longer are going to be able to be rich by the wealth on the sea. For in one hour, again, very short time, she is made desolate. She is made a wasteland. We saw that earlier in chapter 18. Now when you put dust on your head, that's a sign of repentance. It's a sign of mourning. Job, when he was afflicted by Satan, put dust on his head. And he, re, he sat in, in sackcloth and ashes because of the, the, the mourning over the loss of his family, over the loss of all of his wealth. And, and he, he, he was suffering. It is reserved for deep despair and suffering. But again, instead of mourning their sin, this is, this is the mark of the wicked. Instead of mourning their sin, they're in a sense mourning that they got caught, right? <laughs> if you have kids, you, you know how this works, right? You know, the kid, you know, you tell a kid don't do something, and they, of course they do it. And then when they do it and you punish them, they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Well, they're not sorry because they did something wrong. They're sorry because you caught them doing something wrong. Now, in some cases, some of the kids are actually good kids. They're like, oh, I'm sorry, I, I let you down. But in most cases, it's, I'm sorry, I got caught. I'll try to do better and not get caught next time. Yeah. <laughs> now I know what, this is a test run. Now I know what to do next time. <laughs> but uh, it's, this is the morning of, of the wicked. It is the morning that does not lead to repentance. It's the morning that leads to destruction. And now, finally, in verse 20, in contrast to all of this weeping and lamenting and mourning over the destruction of the world system and, and, and Babylon the Great, you see in heaven, rejoicing. Look at verse 20. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. So all of heaven, including the holy apostles and prophets, are called now to rejoice. They are called to rejoice at the destruction of the enemies of God. They are called to rejoice at the fall of Babylon, the great enemy of God and His people. This rejoicing in heaven, they are rejoicing in heaven because God has avenged those who have suffered and died at the hand of Babylon the harlot. Again, look back, I believe it's chapter 17, verse 6. This woman, Mystery Babylon, the great mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth, 17 verse 6, I saw the woman atop the beast drunk with the blood of the saints 
and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So this Babylon, the system, has, has persecuted the people of God. Again, the people of God are in the world, but not of the world. They are pilgrims, exiles, sojourners. And throughout the whole history of the church, the church has been under persecution, sometimes in various levels, varying levels, sometimes greater, sometimes lesser. I think we in America are completely detached from this because we've lived in a country that is, at least since its founding up until even now, has has been tolerant of religion, has even promoted it early on. So we haven't really lived under any kind of serious persecution in this country. But in other places across the world, the church is persecuted. The church is in these wicked countries, and they're persecuted. They can't hold worship services. They can't sing hymns. They can't even own Bibles half the time. And this has been, that's the, that's the, that's the normal state of affairs for the church throughout church history. You have these brief periods where the church is, is strong and, and promoted, but for the most part, the church is under attack. So they rejoice in heaven because this great persecutor of the people of God, the one who is literally sitting here drunk on the blood of the saints and the martyrs, has been avenged, has been judged. She has been cast down. God has avenged His people. And this is why the Bible tells us, right, to not take vengeance for ourselves. Do not avenge, you know, do not take vengeance for yourselves. Leave it to the Lord. Why? I will repay. The Lord says, I will repay. Now, we want the Lord to repay when? Now. <laughs> right? We want the Lord to repay now. But think, think about, and I'm riffing here, but think about, like, when Abraham is talking to God and God tells Abraham, says, I'm going to give you this land, but not yet. Because your people, your, your children, 400 years later are going to come back, but they're going to see affliction. But uh, it, it's going to take a while because the sin of the Amorites hasn't yet been fulfilled, hasn't come to completion. God has a reason for his timing why he doesn't take vengeance on our timetable. And we have to be okay with that. <laughs> we have to be okay with God's timetable as I like to say oftentimes. But God will take vengeance. God will right every wrong. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. He will set all things straight. He will make all things new. And He will do so by means of His perfect justice. And when He takes vengeance, we will rejoice. Right? We will rejoice when God has avenged us on the harlot here. And there's a word for this, and it begins with a V, and it ends with an indication. <laughs> vindication is the word. This is perfect vindication. Our faith and our patience is not in vain if we wait upon the Lord. But we have to wait upon the Lord. And again, the Lord's timing is not our timing, and we get impatient. This evil world system, the beast, the false prophet, the harlot, all arrayed against God and His people will be judged. We already saw it in chapter 17 when the Lamb makes war with, or when the, the beast and the, the, who has the ten horns makes war against the Lamb, the Lamb will overcome Him. We saw it at the end of chapter 16 the, in the battle of Armageddon. The Lamb will overcome Him. We're going to see it again at the end of chapter 19. 
uh, where Jesus, the great hero on the white horse, will come and He will overcome the kingdoms of the world. He will judge them. The beasts, the kings of the earth, their armies gathered together to make war against Him who sat on the throne. I'm reading from chapter 19, verse 19. I'm peeking ahead. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of burning fire with brimstone. The rest were killed. So this great, massive army arrayed against God at the end of the age is wiped out by a word, by the sword which proceeds out of the mouth of Jesus. Wiped out in a word. Vindication. Our faith is not in vain if we wait upon the Lord. And again, if you look around the world, it can be difficult to think that we're going to win. Right? It, 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 it's, it pains me. You look around the world today, and, and you might see, you know, maybe on, in a given day or a given week or a given month, you might see some good news. Oh, this, maybe we're reversing some of these trends, and then something else will happen. You're like, ah, oh, back in the pit again. And it just feels like we're not making any, any progress. Rulers and leaders hungry for power and who use it to advance their agenda, that's still happening. Corporations and institutions who work tirelessly to enslave us with the latest consumerism or some wicked ideology to enslave us, that's always happening. Babylon is a harlot. And the reason she's depicted as a harlot because she is seductive, because she seduces, she lures, she, she tempts us. If you remember when we talked about Babylon before, she tempts us by... Uh, using fame, money, and power. Fame, money, and power. That's, those are the three main weapons that she has to tempt us. And the church can get caught in the middle of all this. There's a lot of temptation for the church in exile in Babylon to conform and compromise to the world around us. A lot of temptation. A lot of temptation. And a lot of anger when we refuse. Right When the church and when Christians stand up for their beliefs, the world gets angry at that. And we're called ists and phobes and whatever they, they throw our way. All of that faith and trust is vindicated when God takes vengeance out on Babylon. And this is a cause for rejoicing. I just want to close with a few passages here. Psalm 96. These are passages in which the people of God rejoice at the judgment of God. Psalm 96, verses 11 through 13. In fact, if you have a Bible with headings, Psalm 96 is headed, a song of praise to God coming in judgment. <laughs> so it kind of gives away the, the, the plot of that psalm. <laughs> but in verse 11 of Psalm 96, let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord, for He is coming. For He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with His truth. That's what we hunger for. Righteousness. You know, even, even when a good judicial system makes a good ruling, it is never perfect. It is never perfect justice. It is never perfect righteousness. God will judge in perfect justice. God will judge in perfect righteousness. And it will be a cause for us to rejoice because He will be doing so. Isaiah 49, 
verse 13. In Isaiah 49, verse 13, the prophet tells us, Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have mercy on his afflicted. God will comfort those who are faithful. God will bring comfort and and have mercy on his afflicted people. He will do so when he brings judgment. And one final passage, Isaiah, or sorry, Jeremiah 51. Jeremiah 51, verses 47 to 48. So Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 47. Therefore, behold, the days are coming that I will bring judgment on the carved images of Babylon. Her whole land shall be ashamed, and all her slain shall fall in her midst. Then the heavens and the earth and all that is in them shall sing joyously over Babylon, for the plunderers shall come to her from the north, says the Lord. Judgment comes. And this is one of the main purposes of the book of Revelation as a whole. Whatever your views on the certain things that we've looked at in the book of Revelation, and there's various views, and, and I don't hold dogmatically to my views in a lot of cases in Revelation because it is so mysterious and we need to have charity as we look at this book. But one of the main purposes, and I think this is indisputable, is that the book of Revelation talks about how God will vindicate his people. That's one of the things. This book was written in a time when the church was under heavy persecution. John, when he wrote, whenever John wrote, I believe he wrote late, doesn't matter because whether he wrote in the time of Nero or the time of the Emperor Domitian at the end of the first century, the church was under persecution. When he writes to those seven churches, he writes, a couple of them he writes to those who are under heavy persecution, and he says, you will suffer persecution for a few days, be faithful, God is coming, all of this is to prep a a church that is under persecution to stand fast, to hold firm, to not give in, to not give in to the seductions of Babylon, to not give in to the lures of the enemy, but to hold fast because God is coming. He will bring recompense. He will bring vindication. He is sovereign over these things. That's what we're seeing in these visions. God is sovereignly bringing down judgment on the world through the seals, through the trumpets, through the bowls. He will judge the beast. He will judge the dragon. He will judge the false prophet. He will judge Babylon. He will bring judgment. And again, the church today faces persecution as she had all, has all throughout church history. And what keeps us going? What keeps us going is the faith that we have in God that He will bring judgment on the wicked. He will vindicate us. He will, again, the wicked, he will tear down the evil world order and he will vindicate his people. That is what holds us together. That is what the book of Revelation is trying to get across because when we get there, and we'll get there, right at the end, you'll see, you know, the new heavens and the new earth and God, you know, Jerusalem comes down, the church comes down, she's arrayed and she is perfect, she's been sanctified, and she comes down as a bride ready for her husband, and you know, it'll be perfect. And God is, it says God will wipe away every tear. Those tears are the symbols of our hurt. Those tears are the symbols of our pain. Those tears are the symbols of living life under the sun. And God will wipe those away. He will wipe those tears away. 
and he will vindicate his people.